Welcome to the Startups Roundtable podcast, where we discuss the science and art of startups with founders and the broader startup community. I'm Tony Hackett, and I've spent over a third of my B2B sales career either working for early stage startups or as a go-to-market and social selling mentor for founders and their teams. In each episode, we will explore various topics, including decision-making, team-building, and growth strategies. Before we meet today's guest, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending today. I'm joined today by Elise Peterson, the founder of Tealit. Elise is an experienced food scientist who is dedicated to sustainable food solutions. And through TLIT is connecting tea growers with drinkers and optimizes value for both. In this conversation, she shares her passion, commitment, and drive around sustainable practices associated with the tea industry. And the importance of fairness and equity was evident in every moment of this conversation. But that's enough of me for now. Let's meet Elise. My background, I'm a food scientist and I worked in the food industry. So that's working in, you know, food big food industry, doing compliance, regulatory, product development, engineering. I worked in several different industries and was really kind of jaded in seeing that the food industry and the, the food supply is not really food. As you know, the person with the lab coat making the decisions of what goes into it, I was like, this is not really food. This is not what I, I signed up to study and to signed up to work for. So I had a friend that convinced me to join the Peace Corps. And he said, you know, that'll give you a couple of years to do something else in life, take a break, and it'll pad your resume. It'll be good for you. Which it was. It was the greatest experience I've ever had in my life and really put me on the path of where I am now because what I learned in that two years that I spent in Niger, West Africa in a small village with no running water and no electricity was that even though the folks that I was living among were in a very sad situation, limited food supply, no money, you know, but they were so happy. And I always question, how is there so much happiness here? Even though from my perspective, it seems like there's so much sadness. But uh, what I came to learn, it was because they were so intimately connected to the things that they needed. So the food that they ate, they had to produce it themselves. Uh, The community that was around them, that was all they had. And so family and their neighbors, they just without question supported each other. And they were just so intimately connected to those things that we really needed. And so I felt like as a food scientist coming back to the States and coming back to like my career, I knew that the only thing that I could do would be, you know, to help restore that connection between the producer and the consumer of food, which, you know, is very much not what I experienced in the big food industry. So it was really difficult for me to find a job when I came back, but there was a tea company and I didn't have any experience with tea prior to this, but there's a tea company that was seeking out a food scientist to do quality control. And this was a manufacturer of ready to drink green tea from Japan. So kind of equivalent to like Coca-Cola of Japan. And I worked for them for a couple of years and I was like, wow, tea is really good. Even though our marketing and sales goal is to get people addicted to it and buying more and more of it and consuming more and more of it, I felt as if 
it was actually a healthy, good product that we were providing. And so I knew that I was I was happy working there. But again, back to the connection between the producer, when I was building the company's recall program. So that's the program with coding systems of tracking ingredients that come in and final products that go out in case there's like an E. coli breakout or something like that, we would be able to trace to products uh, safely to the consumer. Uh, We were receiving our raw materials in these large three-ton super sacks with no code on them. And I'd asked my boss, can I build the system for y'all? And these products are coming from Japan. Can I go to Japan? I can set up the program. And he said, no, you know, you're not a manager. This is a Japanese company. All of our management work is done in Japanese language. You don't speak Japanese. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go figure this out. So I went to go get a Japanese MBA so that I can learn Japanese business and become a manager and do that work. Uh, And it just so happened that during the MBA program in the semester between, you know, the summer semester, I was hired by the College of Agriculture to produce a market feasibility study for Hawaii grown tea from a USDA grant because they had found that tea can grow in the in Hawaii good quality tea can grow, but what does the market look like for these farmers? Similarly to Hawaii grown coffee or chocolate, you know, the resources are a lot more costly in Hawaii and they have a harder time competing in the market. So they wanted to make sure before they invested more into this industry, they knew that there was a solid market. Um, So I spent the entire summer with the team researching the market, interviewing all the tea farmers in Hawaii and, you know, found that there is a market But, you know, the market is young, it's uneducated, it needs a lot of education and refinement uh, before a very high-end product could find some success. And also, coincidentally, part of my uh, internship I had to do for the MBA was an internship in Japan. And I ended up networking my way onto a tea farm to do my internship on a tea farm in Kyoto. And it was there that I learned about the commodity industry and why it was actually going to be impossible for this large tea manufacturer to have coding systems on those three ton super sacks. Uh, And I ended up meeting farmers and learning about their problems and their issues of how they get their product into the market and the supply chain that they're dealing with. And we started a nonprofit during that internship called the International Tea Farms Alliance, where our mission was to create a bridge between tea growers and tea lovers. Then I ended up through this nonprofit building a network of farmers from Taiwan, China, Korea, uh, India, Sri Lanka. And they all had similar woes of getting their product into the international market. They had no control, even with e-commerce, even, you know, this was 10, 11 years ago, e-commerce existed, it was possible, but mass supply chain, you know, unless you're Alibaba, it's really difficult to integrate technology into mass supply chain, international supply chain. So they said, Elise, you know, you're very passionate about this work. We can tell this nonprofit is going to be very difficult to manage and to keep funded. Why don't you go back to the States and start a for-profit business? And so that was the start of TLET. I had no ambition of being an entrepreneur prior to this. Uh, I went from being a food scientist to a Peace Corps volunteer and then into tech entrepreneur. But the first weekend back uh, into the US, I went to a startup weekend. And that's where I met other entrepreneurs, designers, developers, and learned about the whole wide world of startups. And it just so happened that one of the judges 
for that startup weekend was a venture partner of 500 startups. And he heard my pitch. It, it didn't even take him more than 12 seconds of my pitch. And at this time, I didn't know how to pitch. I was just telling my story. Uh, for him to say, this is exactly the startups that we like to invest in. We want to stay in touch with you. If you can prove to us that people want to buy this product, uh, we're going to fund you. And so that motivated me to get an MVP rolling. We started selling product through a very simple Magento website. And then we did an Indiegogo campaign and raised about $5,000 on that. And that was enough to encourage 500 startups to... Um, to want to invest in us and we did the uh the accelerator there um and this all happened like within five months it happened so fast um and you know we there we learned how to raise like a very modest seed round and uh you know since then i've kind of realized that my business model is not really fit for venture capital for you know this fast business growth this hockey stick growth that is expected from you know, early stage venture capitalists. So uh, we haven't raised any more money since then. We've just been bootstrapping um, and just building the business day by day, focusing on building community, planting seeds. Because in this business, what we do is uh, facilitate trade between these small tea growers and business buyers. So we are, you know, facilitating the supply chain and working on very small margins. You know, we want to be the middleman. You know, that's always been the issue is that you have all these middlemen, they absorb all the costs and don't really add that much value. They add value, but not that much. Definitely not as much as the value of the actual product. And so on working the, on those small margins, it's slower growth. We have to plant the seeds and, and even this like way of doing business for business owners, for the people we're trying to sell to, to the buyers that we're selling to, they almost don't trust it because it seems too good to be true from the beginning, you know, because it's, it's so novel. It's so innovative. It's like, how are you selling this for so low of a price and being so transparent? Aren't you afraid that I'm going to go steal your source? And, you know, I've come to realize that, you know, businesses need those middlemen, those supply chain middlemen for a reason. You know, they don't have the time or resources to be running around the world managing their own supply chain. So, you know, that's why I've, I've believed it from the beginning. I still believe it now, 10 years later that no one's going to steal that value from us. It's just too much to manage. And if they want to, they can try. And I can honestly count on, you know, two hands, the businesses that have done it in all of these years. So, you know, we just keep plugging along and businesses doing well. Uh, we have a mix of retail, uh, but most of it is wholesale. We do some brokering. So larger scale uh, deals direct from origin to the buyers. We will, if whatever is most efficient, ultimately that's what we're trying to find. So if it's a larger business and it's going to be more uh, cost efficient and time efficient and resource efficient for the products to uh, be sent directly from the producer, then we'll, we'll broker and facilitate that trade. But a lot of our trade is done through us, uh, through a warehouse that we have here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and where we can do quality control and we can import in larger quantities to get the economies of scale and then share that across a larger network of smaller scale buyers um, that usually wouldn't get access to economies of scale um, in logistics, which really has become a major theme of the past couple of years with all the supply chain issues that have come up uh, through the pandemic. So yeah, that's my story. It's a, it's a marvelous story. You made a point just a moment ago there that 
I think I detected from your website and your content, and that is it would be easy for somebody who you go to approach to be the source to almost feel like, I don't want to say it's too good to be true because that sounds a little bit trite, but the, the risk is that they could feel I'm going to be taken advantage of somewhere here. And that could be an initial mindset because there is something that is very true and pure about the business process that you have built. And what you've just described, you make it sound very fundamental because I guess in your mind it is, but I bet there were some pretty interesting challenges at the start that you had to overcome. If there was a a, a potential founder listening to this right now, what might be a couple of things you'd say, you know, we, we hit these two hurdles early but this is how we cleared them and they were they were foundational to how we get to be where we are today. Yeah, I mean the the biggest hurdle has been establishing recognition, establishing thought leadership on this, especially when it comes to wholesale, when it comes to like enterprise, like larger scale business B2B type of um, situations. Conventionally in business, you've got to be experienced you know, you've got to have decades of experience until you're, you're the go-to person for this. You have the thought leadership on this. And I was attempting to do that with less than a year experience. And that was a challenge for people to trust that we knew what we were talking about. And the way that we overcame that is just with putting ourselves out there. So for the first few years of the business, that modest seed fund that we were able to raise and that first round of fundraising, we spent most of that money on traveling so that I uh, could speak at conferences that I could, you know, just cold call. Like I, we learned very quickly cold calling on the phone wasn't very effective, but cold call in far, as far as just walking into the businesses. Um, these are restaurants and tea shops, uh, coffee shops. We would just walk in, introduce ourselves, share our story, and build that rapport with them. And ultimately, the feedback that we received from these shops is that no one else has ever come to visit them in person. It just meant the world to them that we walked in. You know, now I, I look back on that and I was like, wow, that was a, a crazy amount of time and, and money investment to who knows what the return on it would be. Uh, but doing that in the beginning was essential for us uh, to have that initial credibility established in the industry, which, you know, now I don't have to do that so much anymore. And, you know, now I've kind of changed my perspective on that of like, my time is valuable now versus then I was just trying to prove myself. And I think it's okay in the beginning to prove yourself. I think coming in too hot, from the beginning, you know, can break people's trust. But, you know, I came in as this like nobody new to the industry, just scrapping to do whatever I can do. So being humble is part of that as well as yeah. to, to turn up wanting to have a, a true conversation rather it's than true. needing to be the expert out of the gate. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, but, you know, it's been a decade now. My perspective on these things is, is much different now. You know, I, I do expect to be valued for my time and it feels good to be validated in that. You know, like, in fact, yesterday I had a meeting where somebody valued my time and there was no question about it. You know, I'm, I'm hired as a consultant now. So, you know, now if someone wants me to come to their tea shop or they want me to come to their business and help them with something, there's an understanding that, that I have value and my time is valuable. So those tipping points do 
do eventually happen. But sometimes in the beginning, when it's a startup startup, like you're just starting up in a new area, establishing your thought leadership there, you do. Yeah, you do have to be humble. And you know, I hate saying this now, because I feel like I'm saying I'm not humble now. I still am a very humble down to earth person. But I think it's a matter of having boundaries and understanding your value is, is where I'm at now. Do you find yourself making decisions differently or better? Or has there been a step change in that? I'll give a part B to it as well. There are a lot of things that will be on your on your plate that you could actually take up. You need to work out what not to do as much as what to do. How do you determine that? Yeah, I think that that's an intuitive, an intuitive type of thing. Um, it's hard. You know, I was going to actually answer that question and continuing what I was saying before of like, where was that tipping point? And when did I start deciding? I need to say yes to everything to say no to everything. I was thinking about the other day, you know, it was a lot related to when I started to, you know, make personal decisions for myself. You know, I had always kind of delayed starting family and setting roots and doing all those things because uh, I was prioritizing the business and prioritizing being able to pick up and go anywhere uh, for the business. And, you know, maybe the pandemic helped with that, you know, the pandemic settled me down and said, no, wait, you've got to sit here for a second. And then I started thinking about my own personal life. So, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a general kind of rule for people. I think it's just an intuitive type of thing. And I think that therapy, you know, mental health, resources and therapy is another important reason to invest in doing that type of work as well. Uh, Because talking to a mental health professional is going to help you give this outside perspective and ask you questions like, ultimately, you're going to learn it yourself. Like the therapist is not going to tell you when you need to say yes or no, Uh, they're going to ask you the questions that are going to help you figure out for yourself. So you know, yet another reason why addressing mental health while building startups is really important. Because if you don't, you know, you're, you're going to hit burnout and that's no good either. So, you know, if you hit ultimate burnout and then completely crash, you could lose everything that you've been working on versus staying in touch with these things and realizing the boundaries that you need to, to make. And, you know, I think perhaps I could have done a better job of creating those boundaries sooner versus now, but you know, what happens happened and have to, you know, uh, be comfortable with the decisions that you've made and just move forward on it. So I'm happy that I'm at the point now where I've started to build those boundaries. But I'm also happy that I put that hustle in from the beginning, you know, and that's my reputation in the industry. My reputation in the industry is that I'm a fast learner, I'll hustle and do anything. And uh, people trust me, you know, which goes a far way. And I wouldn't have, you know, any of that hadn't I, you know, invested that uh, from the beginning. Do you find your search for or selection of collaborators and team members has changed over the time as well? Relatively, but not quite. I mean, those initial people, the farmers from that nonprofit that was started from that original internship I did. I still work with most of them. And and really the only reason why we don't work together is because uh, they have a different perspective on the value of transparency than I do. And it, it wasn't because of any blatant corruption or anything like that. It's just they, they don't trust transparency. Some people don't trust transparency because, you know, and, and unfortunately it's probably a situation that they've benefited from the lack of transparency in the past. And so 
you know, the inclusion of transparency is a threat to them versus them seen as an opportunity of everybody getting uplifted, everybody being empowered. So that's really been the only reason why any of our collaborators, you know, are no longer active with us, but most of them are still active with us and they're proud to still be working with us because it's added great value to their business and to their communities. What does the future look like for you if you were to talk about a a two to three year window and if you were to take that moment to look out in the a five to ten year window? Yeah, so in the immediate future, I definitely want to grow uh, RT distribution and, and that's been happening. It's been slowly happening. Um, we've been having some some good growth. I mean, the pandemic definitely put a speed bump on that growth the past two years, but we've been resilient and, and coming out of that um, and seeing more growth at T. But, you know, my ultimate vision with this business is to see it transcend beyond T in this this ideal of transparency and supply chain of trust, of, of trust-based transactions happening um, to see it transcend into all agriculture products. You know, and I've said since day one, my ultimate goal with this business is to see it turn into the Alibaba for the food industry, uh, you know, where you can come and as a business, uh, procure all of your products directly from source or with proxies, you know, because it is important that there are proxies, that there are middlemen there. But if there are going to be middlemen there that are, you know, facilitating the transfer of information, you know, in a lot of cases, these farmers are in very rural places. They don't even have access to banks or, you know, ways of of doing international business with a large corporation. So, yes, you do need some type of proxy there. Uh, But what I do want to see is transparency, not just transparency of the information, but transparency of the monies, transparency of the compliance that that is happening. This doesn't only ensure that the producer is receiving fair price for their products, uh, but that trust is built between all pieces, all, you know, uh, pieces of that chain. Yeah, that's the vision. And, and, you know, that vision also includes, uh, you know, I think some actual logistics operations, uh, which is quite exciting. This was a project that I started wrapping my head around about a year and a half ago. And um, it's a big project. um, And I do see it manifesting at some point uh, to bring more efficiency to the the logistics pieces to actually run our own fleet of cargo by sale, you know, which which does address a huge environmental issue involved in in the supply chain that rarely ever gets mentioned the uh, the cargo ships that are transporting all of our commodities around the world are actually running on the dirtiest uh, burning fuel. Also increasing in price and availability is becoming much more uh, scarce. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I do dream of bringing in the concepts of, of cargo by sale, sale cargo, bringing that back. And, you know, that the only way that works, and it's the same way with, with the products that I sell, the only way it works is with consuming less and valuing more. And that's going to be the solution to this inflation issue that we're dealing with, the uh, recession that we're going into. It, it, we really, as consumers, as individuals, as businesses, as governments, we really do have to look at the quantity that we're consuming and reduce it a whole lot. But then at the same time, if we're reducing the quantity, then we don't need to worry about these huge cargo ships 
uh, we can be dealing in smaller quantities, which gives us the opportunity to enjoy higher quality products to consume. There's a, so many learnings along the way that bring you to this point, and a lot of them are just straight out experience in the field. I'm always curious to know about uh, my guests' experiences and their commentary around mentors and coaches, especially the point of view if there was a, a young founder listening to this now, they're trying to think, how do I make a decision around being able to find a good mentor or coach? What would be your reflection on your experiences that you would share? So that's something I'm struggling with right now. And I I think I found someone, I mean, I'm in the process of finding a mentor, but I've gone this long without a mentor. I've never actually had a mentor. I've been introduced to several potential mentors through these accelerators and, and tech funds that I've been a part of. So many, so many. But ultimately, a consistent challenge that I faced was that these mentors, either they weren't listening And I think that's an important thing, even as a a mentor myself or as a teacher, is to think of yourself more of a facilitator than than a teacher talking down or teaching down to to someone else. Let it be an exchange, right? Because, you know, your mentor, they have experiences to teach you about, but they're completely different, you know, applied to what you're trying to build. So, you know, I always felt like people were talking down to me and not really listening, especially when you're building something so innovative on a very primal level innovation, you know, this is not tech innovation, although we have tech, it's an ideology innovation. And then the other thing too, that happens a lot with these mentors that you're introduced to through these, these accelerators and tech funds is that there's like an alternate ulterior motive. You know, a lot of these folks are more, you know, wanting advisory type of positions, you know, they're seeking out equity they're seeking out control and, and pulling some autonomy uh, from what you're doing. Um, so that's why I never like really resonated or, or connected with any of the mentors that were introduced to me. Uh, but just like I've come to realize later in life how important therapy is, you know, I think mentorship is really important. And uh, I have been investing more of my energy into finding a good mentor who can, can help me like make some solid good, good decisions because. I mean, time has just gone so fast for the past like eight years. I haven't had any kind of guidance. I've just been making decisions. And I'll be honest, like I'm a good visionary and I'm a hard worker. I'm a hustler. I'll just keep grinding it out. But I think that I have, and I know that I have missed out on a lot of opportunities of making strong, bold decisions and actions that, you know, could have been helped if I had a good mentor, you know, on my side versus me just trying to figure it out on my own. It's interesting the way that you've expressed it had me thinking about there's knowledge and experience to draw on, but if shared purpose isn't there, then it's kind of all for naught. And that it's about prioritizing in the stack. Do I need the knowledge or the experience or the shared purpose? And if I need them all at once, that becomes a very small subset of the universe. Yeah, I've recently been meeting some really inspirational business leaders that heard my story and and actually valued it, you know, versus, you know, just thinking of, okay, yeah, tea is a big industry. It's a big, ubiquitous cultural item. And she knows the supply chain, you know, and, and a lot of the mentors that I was introduced to before, they just thought, okay, just go find the cheapest product 
and then do the best marketing to get the biggest markup and then you win. And I'm like, no, ideologically, I'm trying to like change that whole idea. And I have the patience and time to inspire the market and the consumer to see the value of consuming less and valuing more versus what Walmart's taught the consumer, which is consume more and value less expect lower prices, you know, it's a it's a long lead thing. But you know, I have been meeting some people lately, that, um, you know, they may have not built their business success with that ideology. But now in age, and I think the pandemic and everything that's been happening in the world has been uh, kind of opening people's perspective to see that, yeah, no, maybe there's more to life than just hoarding resources. You know, there's a lot of value in, in building community and helping other people, you know, have more contentment in their life versus just focusing on our own contentment. Feels like a, a pretty powerful point for us to wrap up today. And Elisa, thank you so much for taking the time. You shared so many experiences. We've barely talked about your business per se, but what you've shared around that and being able to bring community and collaborate together and to hold your mission, it's been such a, a powerful conversation. So I'm so grateful that you would spend the time on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feedback is always welcome. And I would appreciate introductions to potential future guests to invite onto the podcast. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now.